Welcome to Football Uncovered, a podcast that delivers you the most weird and wonderful stories about the men and women in charge of the biggest clubs in the world. This series will bring to you some truly bizarre and often unbelievable tales of the highs and lows from people in control of the purse strings. My name is Will Brazier and along with Richard Johnson, we are joined by our man in the know, sporting intelligencer's Nick Harris. Today's episode focuses on Leeds United from 2002 to 2017. It's all smiles at Ellen Road now, but their journey back to the big time has been one crazy roller coaster ride. Before we get into it, if you're listening to this, please leave a rating and review and let us know what you think. Why not recommend it to a friend? And while you're here, give Sport a follow on Twitter and Sporting Intel to find Nick Harris. Nick, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm just looking to get into it. Rich, Leeds United today, back in the big time, but it's not a very simple plan, is it? This one is a bit crazy. 15 years or so of, of crazy ownership, some really bizarre tales that Nick has sort of helped to uncover for us. So, yeah, I think we should dive straight in. Nick, should we uh, set the scene, go back to the year 2000? Uh, just to put that into context for everyone than the elder gentleman that I'm with, I was nine at the time. But Leeds United, they were on the crest of a wave, weren't they? They were. Who was the last English manager to win England's top division? Was this 1990 then? No, it was slightly after that. It was Howard Wilkinson with which club? Leeds. Leeds. Leeds United, 1992. Which Frenchman was part of that side? Cantona. Yeah, so you had Leeds United, who were, you know, a big title-winning club in 1992 and then had a few off years. Ten years later, by 2001, they were Champions League semi-finalists. They were being talked of by the chairman, Peter Ridsdale, as now authentic contenders to Manchester United and and Arsenal. And they had David O'Leary and they had a, a really promising team and it all looked great. Rio Ferdinand... Nigel Martin, Alan Smith, Danny Mills, Jonathan Woodgate, Viduka Kuhl. I mean, that was some team. Yeah, it was. There's some of those players. I'm getting shivers down my spine thinking about that <laughs> Kuhl-Viduka hookup. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, they, they really had some players in their, in their prime as well, didn't they? I mean, obviously, Rio really established himself as, you know, the top English centre-back at that time at Leeds. Obviously, as I say, Kuehl, Viduka were at the height of their game and even Alan Smith as well, like absolutely fantastic there. Absolutely. And a captain had Lucas Radibi, who was a, a, you know, arguably one of the all-time great South African players, inspirational figure on and off the pitch. They really seemed to be going places. They really thought that they were going to challenge the elite, not just over those years that we're talking about, but for the for the next decades to come, didn't they? They did. I mean, David O'Leary, it was uh, December uh, 99, David O'Leary said he wanted to build an empire at Leeds to rival Ferguson's at Manchester United. And he said, I think the foundations of that empire have now been laid. I mean, it was during that time at the end of 1999 when Leeds let me, a reporter with The Independent, spend a week at the club, access all areas to O'Leary and the training ground and the players, to all different parts of the, the club. It really did feel like a club on the up, on and off the pitch. They played away at Stamford Bridge during the week that I was with them and they won there to go top of the Premier League at Christmas. So there was a real sense that they had the backing, the players, the manager, and they thought that nothing could go wrong. 
Yeah, I think kind of at that time as well, obviously you saw the the inner workings of it, even from a fan's perspective, you know, they were being regarded as a bit of a new powerhouse, you know, or, or, or yeah, at least getting some of their legacy back, as you say, reaching the Champions League semi-final and being a potential challenge. You know, you watch Premier League years back now, uh, some of those seasons, and you see how much they were really talked about as a threat. I think things quickly changed probably though, early 2000s. They did. I mean, after they lost that Champions League semi-final to Valencia, Ridsdale took what has become now known as the most notorious, or certainly one of the most notorious financial gambles in the history of English football, effectively borrowing £60 million in September 2001 in an attempt to take that last step. But it didn't work out. They kept spending money. Robbie Fowler joined. Who who remembers Robbie Fowler played for Leeds? The enormously talented and and global figure Seth Johnson arrived as well. (laughs) He was a potential talent on Championship Manager back in the day. Absolutely. The algorithm, that's one example of the algorithm, <laughs> may be malfunctioning. But um, I don't know if you've heard the anecdote about Seth Johnson, the, the tale of what happened. This is probably up there with one of my top five favourite football stories. I think it's best coming from you, Nick. Well, so it goes is that he went in from Derby. He was on about 5k a week and he expected maybe 10 or very tops 15 thousand pounds a week at Leeds and so the story goes he's in Ridsdale's office Ridsdale says uh Seth um what do you think about thirty thousand pounds a week and Johnson was dumbfounded so dumbfounded he couldn't speak and Ridsdale mistook this as as disgust at such a derisory offer so he offered him thirty seven thousand pounds a week and then Johnson signed now unfortunately it turns out that that story is apocryphal no Johnson later said it never happened oh. but the point the point is it was believable because it was kind of consistent with the extravagant spending going on and so illustrative of, of sort of some of the other things that were going wrong around that time. That I'm gutted to hear that's uh, not a true <laughs> tale. <laughs> but let's unpick some of that then. So as we sort of know and, and soon evolve, what Ridsdale was, is effectively doing is just poor negotiating, some poor operating of the football club and just escalating those costs so much that they were absolutely unsustainable and effectively gambling on that ability for them to keep getting in the Champions League and maybe even win the Premier League? Yeah, basically, they they showed all this promise. They got themselves into the Champions League. They got themselves to a semi-final. I think his thinking at the time was, this money will come back to us because we just need the final push. The last few players, you know, the bit more on the wage bill that will just really take us where we need to go but it didn't work out like that and as soon as something like that starts to unravel then they had a big wage bill they were racking up losses the wage bill that they did have was unsustainable and by summer 2002 they had to actually start selling players off just to to sort of stem the bleeding so they were sort of going reverse quickly they were weakening what was a, a strong team and um just to try and, and stay solvent so Rio got sold for 30 million and Robbie Keane got sold for 7 million and Woodgate for 9 million and Lee Bowyer had to go Fowler went not long after he'd come and um, by spring 2003 Leeds really were sort of in free fall on and off the pitch Just on that Nick as well obviously it was a 60 million pound loan obviously still getting income in from different TV rights and everything I know they didn't qualify for the Champions League but what else was going so wrong at the club because that's still quite a vast amount of money that they've managed to recoup like what else was going on? Well, you say it's a vast amount of money to, to recoup, but we found out a little bit later when the accounts came out quite how bad the situation was. I mean, you know, they were losing so much money. When the um, figures for 2002-2003 came out, they had made the biggest loss 
one year loss for any football club in the history of football anywhere in the world ever. It was £49.5 million they'd lost. Now, I know we've become inured to big losses and, and figures like this at, at clubs like Man City during their early period with Sheikh Mansour. We, we've just become so used. But that was a massive figure. You know, 17 years ago to lose £49.5 million. They had debts of more than £100 million and their income was falling. O'Leary had gone because he wasn't on board with selling off the players that he built up. Uh, Terry Venables, I don't know if you remember Terry Venables, had been and gone without much success. Peter Reid was now in charge. So it got to the point where they'd lost the manager. Ridsdale then quit because he'd made a massive mess. Venables hadn't helped. Peter Reid hadn't managed to, to turn around what was a really difficult situation. And then you ended up with this academic, Professor John McKenzie, took the helm at this debt-ridden club on its way, goodness knows where. So it was just it was just a complete mess and it had unraveled really quickly, as I said, from between sort of the end of uh, 2001 when they took the loan and, and 18 months later when they were just in a complete mess. And, you know, at that stage was kind of the writing on the wall for, for, for Leeds in terms of they almost really need to go, as they did, really need to take a number of steps back to then come forward again. Do you think it was rescuable? Well, as it transpired, it wasn't rescuable from the point that they borrowed all that money and therefore they had this debt. And as soon as things started to falter on the pitch, partly because sometimes that's just what happens at football club and partly because they're selling their key players to stem the bleeding then it obviously wasn't rescuable. I mean, then Peter Reid got sacked and Eddie Gray was put in charge and and you end up with Leeds being relegated from the Premier League, at which point they're relegated with massive debts, massive costs, none of their best players left, and it's all gone terribly wrong, you know, in just a couple of seasons. And the sort of mess, again, we talked to the Johnson thing, which was an infamous anecdote that wasn't true, but one thing that was true, when Mackenzie was going through the books, he found all sorts of... Um, expenses there was massive player salaries massive directors expenses the club had a fleet of cars I think it was 77 club cars in the fleet so yeah yeah so everybody associated with club had their own car being paid for but most notoriously there was a 20 pound a month charge for the upkeep of Peter Ridsdale's goldfish I mean (laughs) it was like 240 quid a year so again that became a true symbol of what was um wrong and the extravagance and the expenses at Leeds at that time. We've actually uh, got the goldfish here today to uh, refute <laughs> the claims. But yeah, obviously then relegation happened. I think we'll all remember the scenes of Alan Smith crying, debts racking up, new owners on the horizon, um, and then Master Bates, Ken Bates arrives. He wasn't immediately onto Bates. What happened, again, symbolic of, of where Leeds were at the time, they were actually taken over by a consortium of local businessmen headed by a guy called Gerald Krasner, who was best known at the time as an insolvency practitioner. So he's been involved in a lot of sort of club administrations, particularly in the North over the years. But um, his expert solution to Lee's problems was to sell the club to Ken Bates in January 2005. I think one thing that we always know through doing all the research for this podcast and things that you've told us, Nick, when these sorts of figures, these middlemen come on board, it always uh, <laughs> always ends in trouble, doesn't it? It does. I mean, we were never confirmed how much Ken Bates paid, but we thought about 10 million for half of the club. And it was never declared who owned or controlled the other half, although it later appeared that it was controlled by someone called Ken Bates, which was all very, very strange. So Ken Bates and Ken Bates? 
Yeah, so Ken Bates officially bought half the club, but it was never declared who was ultimately behind various entities that controlled the other half. But later on, which might have been for, for some sort of financial or tax or other reasons, the way the deal was structured. But later on, um, his hand was forced and he sort of had to declare that actually he did own, own the whole thing. So that was just another twist. Um, but also during that 2004-05 season, things were so bad, they not only were sort of relegated and just scrapping for, for cash, but they had to sell Ellen Road and Thorpe Arch training ground to raise enough money just to keep going. Wow. Now that's kind of like we see in the in the in the lower leagues of the football league uh, championship of this seems like a bit of common practice now some clubs like selling off their grounds which again like often fans aren't happy about but to happen at that level is like pretty significant. Yeah, I mean I mean now more recent years it's been a financial fair play dodge i.e. you basically sell the ground to yourself but that counts as income into the club's books which means you can spend more to get around financial fair play rules. Uh, it was done back then because Leeds were just broke and they didn't have the money to sort of run themselves. So they, Bates was forced to sell the ground. But um, I was at the abrasive press conference when he first arrived and um, he invoked Silla Black's famous catchphrase saying, we're going to have a Laura Laura laughs. So he was very abrasive as he, as he could be with, with uh, fans and press. And I wrote at the time, on the evidence of the combative, tetchy and thoroughly unenlightening press conference, his reign threatens to be about as amusing as a punch in the face. <laughs> and he, he was um, he was telling photographers to get out of the way. He was saying, get out. I don't want you flashing in my face. And then he flapped open his jacket in a sort of dirty old man fashion. And he said he was the only person who'd be allowed to flash around here today. And then he said, if you carry on, I'll walk out when he was asked why he bought Leeds. Um, <laughs> and then he said, it, it's simple. I just won't deal with you, he told us, explaining um, what would happen if anyone who covered Leeds sort of questioned his his motive. You know, he was 73 even then. And it was quite clear that he wasn't going to be, you know, particularly wanting to win friends and influence people. He was going to do things the way he'd always done things. I feel like we're going to need, on Football Uncovered, we're going to need a Ken Bates special. Because I was doing some research for this podcast and I stumbled across a video where Ken Bates was, uh, was at Chelsea and installed uh, electric fences around uh, certain parts of the stadium. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was obviously back in the in the days where people were trying to wonder, what do you do? To cope with the hooligan problem, and obviously Chelsea had a problem, as did, you know, infamously uh, a lot of clubs, Luton and QPR, and it wasn't the best times for football, was it? And uh, we all know where that ended up. With Ken Bates, uh, did you manage to spend a lot of time with him? You know, sometimes you get close to some of these owners and, and key characters and individuals, because he seems like a bit of a... Maverick. Maverick, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have spent, I've spent time around him obviously professionally um it's quite disconcerting because ken bates is the kind of guy who will ring you directly and ask you why the hell you wrote something about him i mean there was one sunday morning uh, a few years ago when i got a phone call and ken phoned me from his penthouse in monaco asking you know why the hell i'd written it was a single sentence about the way that he left chelsea um obviously chelsea were not necessarily in the best financial situation in the world when he sold to Abramovich in 2003 so I'd written a single sentence in a much longer piece about questioning whether he'd sort of been forced nine o'clock on a Sunday morning my mobile phones it's Ken Bates to sort of shout at me and ask me what the hell I put that sentence in and it wasn't true that he was forced to sell and he was the best owner and blah 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 so yeah I mean he was quite combative he didn't really 
give a, a toss what people thought of him, uh, as we'll see during his, his stewardship of, of Leeds. And I think Leeds fans overall came to really, really despise him. You know, he promised that he would buy back Ellen Road and Thorpe Arch. And in the years that he owned the club, that, that never happened. He ended up taking them into administration and down to the third level of English football. And it was a very difficult time for the club. And he was not really ready ever to take criticism or be challenged about the way he did things. Because he actually felt like he was doing a good job, didn't he? Even when they were floundering in, in League One. Yeah, I mean, he did. He, he he sort of thought that everybody, you know, should be grateful to him for taking the club and trying to run it in um, a financially sensible way, which obviously was the opposite to the way Ridgedale had done it. So he just thought that Leeds would be back quite soon and that because they were a huge club, and they are a huge club, obviously, that would be able to turn it around. But um, he didn't. So they ended up spending three seasons in League One and um, going through various managers, Kevin Blackwell and Dennis Wise and uh, and others. And it was not not a good time. It was protests against Bates at the start of the 11-12 season. And he wrote in the programme notes that he was unimpressed by the demonstrations of a few morons on Saturday and ain't going anywhere soon. I saved your club in 2005 and 2007 when nobody else would. The rebuilding of Leeds United is a bit like sex. In an age of instant gratification, Leeds United is having a long, drawn-out affair with plenty of foreplay and slow arousal. <laughs> I mean... I'm hot. Well, I'm very um, hot right yeah? now. Yeah. And you're just it's, taking your top off. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was more years of pain. He wasn't going to spend money. He made a valid point that these things sometimes take a long time to turn around. We've seen so many clubs, big clubs, whether it's Aston Villa or Blackburn or... Leeds and even Manchester City, you know, were down in the third tier during the Premier League era. It does happen to, to clubs, but yeah, it was a torrid time. Well, I've got a question for you. Have you ever thought of Ken Bates being a, a sexual man who participates in a long, drawn-out arousal and, and a slow foreplay? I mean, it's mad that that... How does that even make the programme notes? You, know, you think <laughs> there'd be a sort of filtering process to go like, Ken... Probably rein it in a little bit. Protest stuff's fine, but let's not think of you with your with your old man out. So I went up to went to Ellen Road to sort of cover the protests, and um, Ken Bates was there. Sort of, I think he was in an upstairs office, and um, he saw me and a couple of other journalists, and he instructed security to throw us off the premises because we were there <laughs> to cover the protests. So. You know, that's the kind of thing he didn't He didn't like protests. He thought he called his own fans morons. I mean, he wasn't there to win friends and influence people, but um, that was it. He ultimately decided he couldn't turn it around and started looking. I don't know exactly when he started looking to sell, probably a lot earlier than he did manage to sell, but it was um, 2011-12 that I think he really started looking for people who might come in and be able to give him some money to get out of there. Uh, I mean, this just shows again the, the sort of perils that Leeds fans have gone through. We've gone through this like Ridsdale era of good ambition, but mismanagement. The Bates era where things just yeah seem to be almost driven by his ego and arrogance more than anything. And now I think with the next era and takeover, things get a little bit sort of murky, don't they? Tell us about sort of this GFH takeover and, and, and sort of this next stage in uh, Leeds' ownership evolution? Yeah, I mean, this ended up being one of the strangest, strangest episodes in any football club's history, the ownership of Leeds by this company called GFH Capital. And they were a Dubai-based subsidiary of a Bahrain bank, Gulf Finance House. 
And Bates was talking to these guys from summer 2012. And they'd said, look, we're a Bahrainian bank, effectively state-owned or at least state-supported bank. What a lot of people didn't know or realise at the time is that the bank itself was really not worth very much. It didn't have many assets. It was just a very strange entity. It certainly didn't have the money to buy and run leads successfully. So there were all sorts of unanswered questions about um, GFH Capital and what they knew about football, which was minimal, and what funds they had to put into the club, which was also minimal. Their bid was being publicly pushed by two front men, a guy called David Hay, who's from Cornwall, and sort of said he was a lifelong Leeds fan since he was a boy, which was not really true. And Salam Patel, who was an executive who worked out of Dubai, and they were sort of the public face. They came to Leeds. They they ingratiated themselves with Leeds fans. A lot of Leeds fans who were desperate to see the back of, of Ken Bates just embraced them and welcomed them and believed everything they said, that they were going to spend £17 million to, to buy the club in three instalments. And then they would pay more as and when they got Leeds promoter back to the Premier League. Um, they insisted they had vast resources and wanted to be long-term owners. But the reality is that even in summer 2012, before they'd even bought Leeds, their most senior official in Bahrain, a guy called Hisham Arez, was planning to flip the club, i.e. sell the club. So before they owned it, they were planning to sell it. And they were, just in, they were just in la-la land. I think they thought Leeds United is a massive club, which is true, but that we'll be able to buy it for X price and then immediately sell it for a massive profit. It was just economics of... Of La La Land. So this is another like example as well that does seem to to again be a common theme in some of these stories where ultimately people come into football, they think they can see a bargain and they have the silver bullet and then they're gonna make a ton of money out of it. That just seems crazy that like even before they'd done the takeover, they're already shopping it around and thinking, okay, well, how can we make a quick buck and get out of this? Which, as we know, doesn't really happen in football very much. Well, I mean, it's remarkable. There was a few things. So before they bought it and they were struggling to raise the funds to even pay for the first instalment, their plan was to sell it either to a Saudi businessman, we we never found out the identity, or to the Dubai-based Suleiman Al-Fahim, who was a one-time spokesman at Manchester City when Mansour first took over. And he was also well known as the face of the Dubai version of The Apprentice. And he ended up sort of being a bit of a mm. sorry-ish clown figure. But they were the, the two people that they, they thought they might be able to sell to. And that didn't come to anything. But the absolutely extraordinary thing, which again, I found out much later and, and wrote about when I found out, was that GFH was so broke when it came to trying to complete the deal at the end of 2012, that they borrowed money illegally from an Iranian account holder of of their bank, GFH in Bahrain, where the account technically should have been on lockdown to prevent nuclear arms trading under a United Nations Security Council resolution. So just to be clear, there was this bank account held by Iranian company that should have been locked down, i.e. not have access to their funds because the United Nations thought that money might be spent on nuclear weapons. And GFH borrowed a chunk of money from that account in order to pay Ken Bates to buy Leeds United. I mean, that is just incredible. I found this out two years after the takeover. So Nick, that wasn't common information at the time, obviously, that that was happening, that that this money was being 
borrowed from potentially, you know, a slightly dodgy source. No, I found this out two years after the takeover when I was investigating how the hell this had all happened. But sources provided me with some documentary evidence, showing some bank transfers, in fact, showing that money from a company called the Injazat Technology Fund was used to get the takeover across the line. And that company was co-owned by an investment vehicle, which in turn was owned by the Iranian government. And under UN sanctions, the Iranian government and their various companies should have been prohibited from uh, various aspects of international trading in an attempt to stop Iran developing a nuclear weapons programme. There's no suggestion that Bates knew any of the money that he was paid by GFH was ultimately owned by a party other than GFA. But, um, you know, I spoke to the football authorities at the time and they just said they didn't they didn't know about this. I mean, we all know that there has been at different periods, certainly uh, then, probably now, with regulation in football. But the fact that it hadn't been scrutinised where the ultimately the funds were coming from showed that there was a big problem. I mean, that should have been a massive red flag if you can't even afford um, to, you know, put together part, a partial payment to buy the club in the first place how the hell are you gonna you know invest in it properly but as we as we know now uh, gfh never really intended to keep leads for long and then even more ridiculously they, they made a strategy of trying to sell part of it and keeping a majority ownership but then get someone pay someone else to run it so it was absolutely ridiculous that's crazy and then it gets even more ridiculous with trying to bring someone in and that person turns out to be massimo cialini who I don't want to, uh, you know, never judge a book by its cover, but you have a look at him and his background and you wouldn't say <laughs> this guy screams top football owner, would you, Nick? <laughs> no, it was chaotic. I mean, he was a convicted fraudster. He was the guy who eventually met their demands and he agreed to a deal worth up to £35 million, allowing them to keep 25% of the club and basically he would pay to run the club. And this was in January, February 2014. He wasn't initially allowed to complete the takeover because of a, a tax evasion case related to a yacht, as you do. Uh, nonetheless, he took effective control in early 14, 2014 and started funding Leeds. He sacked Brian McDermott and then reinstated him after being forced to by GFH. And then he was sort of waited for the uh, for the green light to actually uh, get cleared or be investigated for various tax and other offences. So um, while we were waiting for that green light, for Cellino to take control, I got all sorts of leaks out of the club about just the madness of what had been happening under GFH, who were not just clueless but potless. And uh, people inside the club were saying, you know, they were clueless and they were amateur. They attempted to meddle in team affairs. Some of the things that happened, they attempted to sack Brian McDermott. This is Hisham al Rays, the, the main guy in Bahrain, attempted to sack Brian McDermott by telephone at half-time during a championship match with Sheffield Wednesday. They ordered McDermott by email from Bahrain to recruit cosmopolitan, glamorous players from places such as Brazil without giving him any money to do so. Uh, they asked Ken Bates, who was now the former owner, for a million quid loan to pay up wages because they couldn't afford to pay the players. Uh, and then they failed to pay him back on time. And they asked to Cellino to spend £33.5 million in cash to acquire three quarters of a club who didn't own their own stadium or a training ground and had up to £20 million worth of debt and losses of around a million pounds a month. And Cellino, being the uh, maverick uh, and, uh, shall we say, interesting guy that he is, uh, agreed to those terms and uh, basically took control of the club. How do you um, get £33 million cash? Is that like literally a briefcase exchange? Well, I mean, Cellino is, is an interesting guy. I mean, he, he owned um, 
Cagliari in, in Syria and he, he's got fingers in all sorts of pies. He's um, a big, big, big guy in the in the world of semolina and all sorts of different business interests so he was he was a wealthy man but the exact source of all his wealth is is perhaps um not fully known but he he certainly came in and um did the deal but it was it was chaos it was complete chaos and it gets kind of weirder as well i think as this story evolves with Cellino. but a couple of things here he tried to sack brian mcdermott at half time so presumably yeah. they were losing and He's got to go now because we need to win the second half. <laughs> this is not acceptable. Like, well, because he's quite regarded as a nice, salt of the earth kind of guy. You know, I think likable by the Leeds fans. Uh, you know, at that time, it seems like absolutely bizarre that that you'd even do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was half time. Hishamar Ray's phoned David Hay, who was then Leeds manager director, told him to sack McDermott um, <laughs> because he didn't like what had happened in the first half. So he wanted to go into the dressing room and sack him in front of the players. So Hay couldn't believe what he was hearing and he didn't go through with it because even he thought that was just ridiculous. Um, he was actually then sacked shortly afterwards by a lawyer supposedly acting for Cellino, only to be unsacked the following day. I mean, this is just chaos. The Bahraini chairman of Leeds, a guy called Salah Nuruddin, provoked a boardroom row by insisting that a business associate's son be given a place at Leeds United's Academy at the time. The 18-year-old did turn up at Ellen Road, although he was rejected as not being good enough. GFH were claiming they had hundreds of millions of pounds of assets, but um, Ken Bates said, if that's true, why did I have to lend them a million pounds last March to pay the wages? So Ken Bates is helping them out, to be fair, then. Part of the deal to sell the club to Ken Bates was that as and when they managed to get Leeds back into the Premier League, Ken Bates would get a big lump of extra money, £15 million or so. So it was in his interests that they didn't become insolvent again or have another administration because then, you know, who knows where Leeds could have ended up, how many years they would stay in the third tier. So he was helping them just to sort of keep their heads above water. And the plan was that um, Cellino would put money in and run the club and um, obviously get back to the Premier League. We move on to Cialino. I'm quite intrigued because I, I remember it all happening and obviously going through everything that you put down, Nick, there's obviously some stuff that I had no idea about. But, I mean, he's still about today, isn't he? Because I'm a Birmingham City fan and even this summer there was obviously very, like, flimsy rumours that he, he's still looking to get back into football. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what his ambitions are in English football. I mean, clearly, as we've already said a few times, Leeds are a massive club and he... He knew that he came. He came to Leeds. The fans were absolutely loved him. They knew he was a bit of a rogue. I mean, the football league had placed the takeover on hold. In March, he was found guilty of tax evasion. He was ruled unfit to buy Leeds and stopped from buying the club. But then he managed to get that decision overturned with a lot of uh, legal advice. So the takeover had gone ahead. When he was finally given the green light, um, a few journalists, a few of us were invited to his London lawyer's office, and I was one of them. He's a very charismatic guy. I mean, there's some there's some fairly sinister and dark stories about his business activities and, and, and stuff he has been involved in, in the past, but he's very, very charismatic. He's he's a nice guy. You, most people, most football fans would probably enjoy having a pint with him. He was quite nonchalant about big problems. The club's accounts for the previous season had just come out on the, the day before or on the morning that we met him down in London. And, and I asked him about the debts and the liabilities in this briefing. And he said he had no idea the club was in such a, terrible financial situation he was sitting next to his financial advisor during this meeting and he basically said to him what the f are we getting involved with did you know about this and uh his advisor sort of looked a bit embarrassed as if he had but he hadn't told Cellino how much debt they were in and Cellino just sort of shrugged it off and said he'd sort it out 
No way. So he bought the club, but yeah. without, and obviously really went through a lot of turmoil to buy the club. Yeah. The involvement with GFH, you know, appealing bans that he'd obviously been, been given to prevent him. And then on the day, great session with the journalist to brief them on how amazing everything's going to be, presumably. And, you know, you step up first question. Do you realize that you're in a load of financial shit and he actually doesn't really seem to know the full scale of it? Absolutely. I mean, it was the way that he did things. He was very instinctive. I think he just saw the big picture was that Leeds, if he could get Leeds back to the Premier League, uh, more than 40,000 people. It's a huge club with a massive history and a massive fan base. And and that was always the case. I mean, Leeds really in those wilderness years after getting relegated was always the the one really big club that you thought was ripe for for somebody to do things the right way to bring them back you know, to the Premier League. So so in that, he was right, but he was obviously pretty cavalier. He wasn't a details man in as much as he'd seen the accounts and knew what he had to deal with. I think he just sort of thought, I've got some money, I can do this, and he sort of believed in himself. Anyway, he was cleared, he took over, the fans loved him. I think you will remember the pictures of him sort of on the terraces with the fans, you know, famously having a pint on away games. He lived in a, a flat in, in Leeds City Centre. Leeds fans would often meet him in the boozer. He'd have pints with them. He would talk to fans who phoned him up at the club. But ultimately, he wasn't able to, to do what was necessary to sort of invest sensibly and take Leeds back to the Premier League. We're going to come on to a really interesting story of uh, people potentially trying to stitch him up in a minute. But like, I read a couple of things uh, that really kind of pissed off the fans. It was 2016. He uh, introduced what fans were calling a pie tax, which was essentially he was really annoyed that um, there was people selling beer outside the South Stand and um, fans were grouping there before games to buy pints. So he increased the ticket prices by five pounds in that South Stand, um, which could be redeemed back against a pie or a pint back inside the stadium. So people (laughs) would go in earlier. That's just good business, though. (laughs) Yeah, but fans are like what are you doing and like fair play and he sort of he said it wasn't to do with that but um actually like i think someone secretly recorded him going yeah well these fans they're protesting against me they're not happy they're complaining so i'm gonna up the ticket prices by five pounds so they called it the pie tax there was another one um in 2015 he actually tried to stop sky from showing the leeds versus derby game because he was moaning that they were on tv too much and i think he was worried about attendances so he was like infuriated about that and was refusing to let Sky cameras in um, to, to film the game. I mean, this guy is like crazy. That was a big thing with Leeds for, for years because obviously Leeds were on telly in their football league days more than any club because obviously they were the biggest club in terms of eyeballs. Totally forgotten about that whole ruckus with the football league sort of demanding he wanted to more money, a bigger share because they were on TV more often. Again, this stinks of his ego and arrogance and probably him wanting to be a bit of the centre attention of the club. The more I hear about him, the more I want to get him down at St Andrews. You know, well, you great business sense, get me on TV a bit more. On go Sky. for a side with him. Yeah, exactly. Do you play any instrument? No, I've had three guitar lessons, but I folded. You've got a lovely voice though. Yeah, I have. Maybe you could do backing singing at his annual gig because he has an annual gig with his mates and they play a stadium in Sardinia every summer. Stadium? Uh, think, yeah, it's a big gig, thousands and thousands of people. And um, he's a big Eric Clapton fan and he was talking about this during this meeting that we had when he, you know, at his lawyer's office. And uh, I was saying, I play guitar. So he, he invited me, he said, you know, next summer, will you join us in Sardinia? You can, you know, jam with us oh, on wow. stage. Quality. But uh, <laughs> yeah, on some levels, a fun guy. He's a fun guy. You say... 
he wasn't one for detail, but he did go over the club with a fine tooth comb because he thought that he was being um, spied upon. Which, when I started reading your notes, Nick, I was like, oh yeah, maybe he's just a bit, you know, on edge. But it did come to pass that it was true. Just before we go into that as well, Will, it, that's a nice segue. I thought you were going to segue uh, from the Eric Clapton link there and his potential uh, commonalities with being a uh, you know drug abuser. Right. And um, Cellino. Go on. No, I'm, I'm not saying that he was, but there was insinuations that people were trying to stitch him up. Well, there were certainly suggestions that Cellino Light enjoyed himself <laughs> with certain substances. Insinuations, we must add uh, there, Nick, probably. G- GFH and Cellino were both sort of, obviously Cellino was eccentric, maverick, insert your own uh, uh, describer. And GFH obviously were clueless and potless and, and hadn't managed to, to turn the club around. And I think even though they were effectively business partners, they were massively distrustful of each other. GFH still sort of wanted to put no money in, let Chilino get the club back to the Premier League and then walk away or retain a 25% stake in a now Premier League club or, or sell that stake for loads of money. They still thought that they would be able to make loads of money. Chilino let them have this stake because he thought ultimately he'd be in charge. But the key thing is there was a massive distrust between the two parties. I got a tip off that within days of, of taking over and moving into Ellen Road as the majority owner, he called the police alleging a theft of club funds to pay for spy cameras. West Yorkshire Police confirmed to me it was legitimate and they were investigating. He'd been allowed to take control and he'd employed specialists to sweep the premises for what he said were security reasons and they found spy cameras in the boardroom and the toilets. Now, as I said, it wasn't a massive secret inside Leeds or outside that Janina liked to party and it was alleged to me that the cameras had been set up specifically to catch him taking cocaine in case those videos were ever needed to, in effect, blackmail him, Jeez. which is just wow. extraordinary. He's clearly not thrilled these cameras were there and the police are taking those concerns seriously, a club source told me. It's not known who paid for the cameras to be fitted or where the money came from, but obviously he alleged that money had been taken from club funds. A spokesman for GFH just said to me, we have no comment, but the implication was clearly that someone with access to the club, i.e. GFH or their employees, oh, had sanctioned you. it. The head of crime for Leeds, Detective Superintendent Pat Twiggs, told me we can confirm that police are investigating an allegation of theft relating to Leeds United Football Club following a report made by the club on April the 9th. Inquiries are at an early stage and we are not in a position to give any further information. And then in another twist, David Hay of GFH, who'd been contracted to become the CEO in the Chilino regime, quit at just this time. So that was another mm. mad episode. Crazy. I think that story, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the writing of Steve Bruce and his detective novels, even Steve Bruce couldn't have come up with a story as crazy uh, as this. Yeah. Okay. But maybe he could have um, because he was a, an illustrious writer. But obviously we talked about the spy cameras, but the the thing that I remembered, especially of this era, was just the, the managers that came through the door that were... I mean, even I could say as a mere mortal that weren't up to standard for Leeds United. Seven managers in three years. 
I think one of the most crazy ones, McDermott went and then did Hockaday come in, who'd just been let go from Forest Green, who were non-league at the time. Yeah. He then took charge of Leeds in the championship. And again, apparently, nice guy, like... Doing a bit of research, heard some quotes from uh, Matt Smith, who was at Leeds at the time, and said that, to be fair, he worked them really hard. He was a lovely guy. The, the team really welcomed him. But, I mean, that is... But Ted Lasso on Apple TV. Incredible. Yeah, it gives me a bit of hope. I mean, Chilina did have a reputation in Cagliari for having a manager every sort of eight, nine months. I mean, it was it was more than one a year. It was just, just what he did. So, yeah, he had Hockaday. He had Darko Milinic, who was then sacked. Um, Neil Redfern was he another one after me? Uh, Redfern maybe? was there, yeah, yeah, and all sorts Amazing. of crazy things. I mean, Cellino, another one of Cellino's eccentricities was in spring 2014. Goalkeeper Paddy Kenny was ousted for having a birthday on the 17th of May because 17 was Cellino's unlucky number. Yes, apparently he took like number 17 out of the seats, um, or at least in like directors' box seats. So it went one to 16, mm. and then 16B. That's fair enough, and then 18. Um, so yeah, very superstitious around the number seventeen. You can um, imagine why he's on edge though if he thinks he's got spy cameras around and you know. Yeah, yeah, paranoid guy. I mean, to be fair to him on the spy cameras as well, he's obviously been in this situation before where people have been trying to stitch him up. It's never right to do something like that. It seems very immoral. Yeah, fair play trusting his gut and getting that place cleaned out. So we're coming to the end of Cellini's uh, era here. He's obviously was a massive eccentric, some unbelievable stories there that we could probably spend hours and hours talking on. But we sort of come to the end of our tale of Leeds' demise, where January uh, 2017, Andrea Giorazzini. Nice, that. I I think that's totally wrong. That's all right. He completed the takeover from Cellino. Uh, Nick, what can you tell us about that? And I think it's fair to say from there, we we, we sort of leads have now, now been on the up and yeah, impressed yeah. everyone in the Premier League. I mean, he bought 50% of, of uh, the club in January 2017. And then in May 2017, he announced that he'd bought the whole club. He sort of set about investing sensibly in Leeds. He hired, obviously, Bielsa as a coach. And Leeds had some near misses in the championship, but obviously for finally getting... Um, promoted this year back to the Premier League and on the early evidence they look like they have got a fighting chance of staying up and possibly doing much better than staying up. It took them what best part of 15 years and it's been a crazy time in between. If you did a where are they now of some of the characters it goes off in even odder areas. I mean we haven't even touched upon the fact that David Hay who at one point was running Leeds got arrested in Dubai and spent the best part of two years in a prison there. What was that for? Well, GFH alleged that David Hay had embezzled millions of pounds and they basically sort of tried to lay the blame of everything that had gone wrong at Leeds on Hay and say that he stole millions of pounds. And in fact, various legal hearings since have have concluded that he did in fact steal millions of pounds and that is still wow. going on. But they, wow. they, they, they sort of tricked him into going to Dubai by saying they wanted to offer him a a new role within the company, and then he was arrested on arrival. Can you imagine that? Sounds like the Tiger King, like when he gets duped to yeah. send him to the zoo. Again, this was just another strange episode. I mean, at one point, I'd been trying to speak to David for years and get him to talk to me about what was really going on behind the scenes at the club, and he eventually, before he got arrested, he agreed to meet me, and I met him in a um, very surreal day in, in a Soho hotel. It later came out that David is gay, and he came out as gay later. I'd, I'd known this at the time when I was sort of looking at um, his 
business background. Obviously, I'd never written this, obviously, for obvious reasons. I wanted no role in outing somebody who didn't want to be outed. This was one of the things that he told me during this meeting, some background information about himself and GFH and how that he felt they were sort of homophobic and all sorts of other things. I was waiting for the lift to go up to the room with David and his PR man to be told all this background about his personal life and GFH and allegations of all sorts of things. And it wasn't long afterwards he got nicked and spent two years in a Dubai prison. I mean, obviously, it's not right that, that obviously, if he was stealing money or, or whatever, obviously part of an ongoing investigation, but... You know, with that as his personal circumstance or, you know, him being gay and then actually being in Dubai in prison. Yeah. Like, I can imagine that be even be quite terrifying, actually, for him as well. Well, yeah, I mean, he had all sorts of human rights organisations, Peter Tatchell, all sorts of people advocating for his release. It was just another incredibly murky episode to do with leaders' ownership. It just shows you how, how bizarre it it all was um the story now is something completely different the new owner has taken the club back to where they feel they belong and 15 years of utter chaos has come to an end and now they're playing bielsa ball in the premier league and loving it amazing moral of the story moral of the story is probably get Cellini and let the good times roll and always be checking for those spy cameras <laughs> wise words as ever football uncovered Right, thank you very much for listening today. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think. Why not recommend it to a friend? Give us a follow on Twitter, on Sporf, and follow Sport and Intel. Find more about Nick Harris. This has been Football Uncovered. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.